I do have to say some more things about Isaac Watts. He's one of my favorite guys. You know, especially to you younger people. You know, when we sing those songs like that, you're probably thinking like, oh, no. Um, one of those tunes that is not even a tune. It maybe sounds more like a funeral dirge to you. And it just doesn't do it for you. Uh, but just just let me encourage you a little bit. Before Isaac Watts came along, this is how it worked. You went to the Psalms and you just sang the Psalms. The problem is the Psalms write in Hebrew, not in English. So you can imagine trying to sing the Psalms that we have. It is painful. So Isaac Watts comes along and he writes at least one and sometimes three or four or five hymns for every single Psalm in the Psalter. In the book of Psalms. And he incorporates with it teaching from the New Testament and Christ. And they're just so rich and so wonderful. And they all rhyme. Now, if you don't like to sing old things and you're just thinking, well, I'm glad we got Isaac Watts over. Don't, don't set aside the words with the tune you don't like. I would encourage you to get the Psalms and hymns of Isaac Watts. I have a, a really small copy that's less than three inches tall that was written in 1832 with really fine pages and gold leaf. Man, it is neat. But you can just get it, you know, a $12 version. And with bigger print, that's easier to read. But you can take that. And when you read the Psalms or have a quiet time, you can just read a couple of them. They will bless you. They are so rich. They are so full of good truth. And they rhyme, so they kind of have a way of sticking with you. So I would encourage you to do that. And also remember that Watts, when he was doing this, was a radical. You know, he was like electric guitar in church. I mean, he was freaking people out. And even today, I talked to one um, Scottish pastor who said, I said, yeah, I said, do you guys sing uh, um, Isaac, you know, any Isaac Watts? And kind of looked at me like, heretic. Um, <laughs> they still today in many churches only sing psalms from the book of Psalms with no instruments and no rhyme so you be thankful you be thankful all right with that let's look at luke chapter 9 we're back into the gospel of luke and we're going to finish up the chap chapter this morning if the rapture doesn't occur in the next hour or so if it does then i'm sorry but that's okay um but luke chapter 9 verses 57 through 62 when I was growing up, there was this old man who lived next door here, and we called him Uncle Bill. He wasn't our uncle, uh, but uh, he was a character. He had a peg leg, and uh, and he, he was proud of it. He would pop it off and hand it to you, and he was a real character. He was a retired railroad engineer, and he was hooking up some, he was standing behind a train, and another train boxcar came and pinched his leg off, and he was just uh, a character, all, had all kinds of stories, and, you know, just, he was something else. Anyways, I used to mow Uncle Bill's lawn, and it was huge. I was 10, and he had a giant yard. And, you know, I would mow it and endure the pain of mowing that whole thing. But in the summer, it was a little bit more of a trial for me. And I found all these reasons and excuses to put the mowing the lawn off when it should have been mowed. 
you know, I would tell him things like, you know, I'm really busy and, you know, I, I got stuff to do, which meant I have to play basketball or, you know, play in the ditch behind the house or watch Gilligan's Island or something, you know, something important. And, um, and uh, I'd say, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll mow it tomorrow. And then he would always tell me this thing that I never quite understood when I was little. He, he would say, Jack, he says, tomorrow never comes. And I always think, what does he mean by that? I mean, tomorrow has always come every other day. Why, why, why doesn't tomorrow ever come? And I just never realized that what he was trying to tell me is today is the day of lawn mowing. And never tomorrow, just like today is the day of salvation and never tomorrow because no one ever gets saved tomorrow. People only get saved today. The lawn can only be mowed today. Well, in a similar way, when you gather around people who come to church and call themselves Christians, there are many who have excuses for not really following Christ, for not really getting involved They're, They'll do it tomorrow. But tomorrow never comes. And as we get into the text this morning, we're going to see this same kind of thing. Excuse makers. Remember, Luke is presenting Jesus as the son of man. And we've seen his miraculous birth and his temptation and his miracles and how he is doing all of these incredible things. And people are are following him by just the thousands. And they're very fascinated with him. But most people are following because he's the miracle worker and he's some cheap entertainment and he is able to make food out of nothing. And, you know, who wouldn't want to have a miraculous loaf of bread or fish? So people are following, but most for the wrong reasons. There is a righteous remnant, though, of women and men who are following him. And we have already seen that Luke tells us that there were many women and many men who are Jesus' disciples and following him. So this is something you have to remember when you read the Gospels, that a lot of times as you're going through the Gospel and it says the disciples, it doesn't always just mean the twelve. Sometimes it means this big multitude. We don't know how many, because they are all... Anybody following him is a, is a disciple in a minor sense. The ones who have believed are a disciple in a more intimate and true sense. And then there's the close disciples, the 12, who later become apostles. And so keep that in your mind. Jesus now is pretty much finished uh, with his ministry around the Sea of Galilee, which is from, if you, you know, think of the Sea of Galilee in your mind, and there's the little river and then the Dead Sea. Well, the Sea of Galilee there, he's pretty much ministered from about the northeast area all the way around and all the hills all the way down uh, towards Jerusalem. So he's pretty much saturated that area with his preaching, teaching, and miracle doing. So now he's kind of getting ready to move down towards Jerusalem. So if you have your Bible, you can look and follow along as I read Luke chapter 9, verses 57 through 62. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, the foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. And he said to another, follow me. But he said, Lord, permit me first to go bury my father. But he said to him, allow the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim everywhere the kingdom of God. 
Another also said, I will follow you, Lord, but first permit me to say goodbye to those at home. But Jesus said to him, no one, after putting his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. Now, from this portion of Luke, you are given three kind of exemplary excuses. Excuses that have been made for thousands of years for people not following God. These excuses are kind of typological or representative of many excuses. And as we get to the end, you'll see they pretty much cover the whole gamut of any excuse you might make to not want to follow Jesus. And Luke includes them here so that you can examine your own life and see if these excuses are either keeping you from coming to Christ to salvation or if you are saved, are keeping you from obeying him and following him like you should as a Christian. The first is, God is not impressed with your fair-weather Christianity. If you look at verse 57, Luke writes, and as they were going along the road. Now, if you compare this text with Matthew 8, we discover that two of the excuses that are mentioned by Luke here happened earlier on in Jesus' ministry. But, you know, Jesus was walking around, going from village to village. He would encounter people along the road, talk to them, call them to follow. And so, really, they're kind of representative of the kinds of excuses you always get when you preach the kingdom of God to people. But two of them came earlier, one came later, and Luke lumps them all together to emphasize the the point, since they're all excuses, though of a different kind and motive, yet they all have the same effect, not following Jesus. So Jesus is walking along, you know, he's walking along the dirt road, he's stopped by some small village, maybe healed some people, preached the kingdom, people are amazed. A few maybe even believe sincerely, a few express their desire to follow him, but they really don't know what that means. I mean, if Jesus just showed up in your village and did some miracles and he's got, you know, two, three hundred people with him and they're all kind of heading down the road, it's like, well, I want to go and see what happens. You know, there's kind of an emotionalism there, a desire to get involved just because it's happening. It's a cool thing. It's miraculous. So look at the middle of verse 57. Someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Does that remind you of anybody? Maybe Peter? Lord, I will never deny you. And then what happened? Yeah, he did. Um, according to Matthew 8, verses 19, the person who said this was a scribe. So the guy says, yeah, I will follow you wherever you go. And at first look, this is, man, this is noble. The guy's noble, man. He's, he's throwing down, man. He is just really, he's committing big time wherever you go. Not I will follow you, but wherever you go. But what we don't see that Jesus sees is what's going on in this guy's heart. This guy's got things going on in there. And as we are going to see from Jesus' response, they aren't that good. William Hendrickson in his commentary says, quote, This man's intentions were not altogether honorable. He saw crowds, miracles, enthusiasm, etc. It seemed so good to be closely associated with one who was in the very center of all this action. So he wanted to be Christ's disciple, but he failed to understand the implications of discipleship, namely self-denial, sacrifice, service, and suffering, end quote. So Jesus saw an excuse buried in this man's heart. And we can 
See how he uncovers it. Look at verse 58. Jesus said to him, the foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. Now, this is pretty telling, isn't it? You know, people live in houses where they go home and you're comfortable. And, you know, even foxes have holes. They dig in the ground and in the heat of the day, they curl up in there in ice cool dirt and wait to raid the chicken coop at night. And birds have nests, you know, in the hollow of a tree or some dense uh, shrub or something where they raise their little flat families and just rest a little bit on their eggs or young. And, you know, everybody has a nice little cozy little pad they go to. But not Jesus. Now, Jesus knows what's ahead, and this guy doesn't. Jesus knows he's going to Jerusalem, that he will be increasingly more hated by the scribes, Sadducees, and Pharisees, that they will eventually falsely accuse him, try him, scourge him, crucify him to death. And this man doesn't know that. But what Jesus knows is that if this man did know that, he would not go. Because see, this little first phrase appears with two other excuses, and we know this is an excuse. And so if Jesus goes to this guy and says, you know, foxes and even birds have homes, places they go to kick back and veg a little bit. But the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. What is he getting at in this man's heart? What's the man's problem? What's his excuse? The man is a fair weather Christian. That's the deal. That's the deal. You know, I used to be a fanatic fly fisherman with a capital F. Not in fly or fisherman, but in the fanatic sense. Uh... I loved fishing so much. I would go as much as I could, even on a lunch break. If I had an hour-long lunch break, I would punch out, get in my truck, drive to the river that was in the middle of town, get out, put on my waders, put on my vest, put on my wading boots, go out there in the middle of the river and just cast for half an hour. Oh, yes. I didn't care if I catch anything. Just fishing was good. I I loved to fish. And I had friends who liked to fish, but they never fished by themselves they only fished with other people because they kind of like you know the companionship of fishing and in the winter time when it was 20 10 zero degrees and chunks of ice were floating down the river and i was out there fishing breaking the ice off the guides of my fly rod catching white fish and i would ask my friends hey you want to come out and go fishing oh no 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 it's way too cold, and you know, I just don't like, you know, that's, uh, I'll wait till spring or summer, and then we can go together. You see, those guys, they liked fishing, but they didn't love fishing. They weren't willing to hurt to fish. <laughs> I was, I still am. I, no problem. I would go fishing pretty much in any weather. I mean, the, the excuses they would come up with was, well, man, it's snowing outside. Why would you go fishing? It's like, well, it's always, it's wet. The fish are just in the water. You know, they don't care if it snows. They're always wet. You know? But, you know, there's Christians who are kind of like this. They, they, they come to church and they're fair weather Christians. As long as they don't have anything else to do on Sunday morning, as long as they got plenty of rest, as long as they don't have a better offer, then they come to church. 
But ask them to hurt. Ask them to suffer. For Christ. No way. I'm not going to do that. They're kind of like the seeds sown among the rocky soil that Jesus speaks about in Matthew 13, 21, where he says, because it has no firm root, as soon as persecution arises, it falls away. That's how many Christians are. You know, I'll be a Christian as long as it doesn't hurt. As long as it's only about receiving and not me giving, not me sacrificing, not me serving, not me going out of my comfort zone, not me being hated because of Jesus. As long as it's easy, yeah, I'm a Christian, man. I am with you. But don't ask me to go out into the winter of persecution. Don't ask me to suffer any storms or trials because of Christ. No, thank you. And the whole sin that is driving this, when you think about it, what is it? Why would, why would this man not follow Jesus? What was his, what was the core issue here? He loved his pleasure more than Christ. That's it. He wanted the comfort and pleasure of home, the convenience of home, the security of home more than Christ. And maybe you're sitting there and you're thinking, whoa, 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 Jack, you're kind of, you know, could you move on to the next point? Um, And, you, you know, I mean, this is convicting, isn't it? You know, maybe you know in your heart that you're a fair weather Christian. You know, maybe you profess to be a Christian, but you know, I don't like suffering either. I. I never volunteer, and if I find out it's going to be painful, or it's going to cost me, or I have to give, or serve, or sacrifice, I always say no, then what are you going to do? You know, you're out there and you're thinking to yourself, man, I hate that one hymn. What is it? Uh, I'd rather have Jesus than silver or gold. I'd rather be his than have riches untold. I'd rather have Jesus than houses or land. I'd rather be led by his nail-pierced hand. I'd rather have Jesus than men's applause. I'd rather be faithful to his dear cause. I'd rather have Jesus than worldwide fame. I'd rather be true to his holy name than to be the king of a vast domain or to be held in sin's dread sway. I'd rather have Jesus than anything this world affords today. And you're thinking, man, that that's him kills me. I'm glad we don't sing it very often. Because man, I, whenever I sing it, I'd say, I'll, every line just seems to read hypocrite, 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 um, the whole day through. And I'm not that way. So how do I get there? What, what do you do when you realize that I do like my comfort, I do like my pleasure, my pleasure, and I don't want to be led by his nail purse hand, but I do and I don't. Well, I'm going to tell you at the end. Let's look at the second excuse. God is not impressed with your desire to be self-sufficient either. Look at verse 59, where we encounter the second almost follower. He is um, somebody now who is not coming to Jesus and saying, Jesus, I'll follow you wherever you go. But Jesus approaches him and says, follow me, follow me. And look at the middle of verse 59. But he said, Lord, permit me first to go bury my father. Now, at first glance, this one here seems rather innocent, doesn't it? I mean, come on, the guy's father's died. 
right? The guy's father has just died. You know, he's needs to deal with them. They didn't embalm people then. You know, it's kind of like, okay, we got to get him in the ground. The problem is you get them in the ground, you touch the dead body, then there's seven days you have to wait before you're unclean again. So about, you know, maybe eight, nine, ten days go by after the morning and everything, and then finally the guy can follow Jesus. By that time, Jesus is long gone. But look at Jesus' response. But he said to him, allow the dead to bury their own dead, which seems a pretty harsh response, doesn't it? Almost insensitive. Like, let the, you know, let your dad, dead dad, be buried by what? Zombies? What's that mean? <laughs> so it not only seems harsh, it's a rather strange phrase. Well, one way is to understand it just literally. The guy's father has just died. The guy's father has passed away. And he, being the son, has to go home, make arrangements, get his father on the ground, you know, go through the cleansing process for seven days so that he can be around people. And that's how it's going to happen. Okay, that's that's one thing. But if that's the case, it seems Jesus is a little bit harsh here. And you think, well, is there another way of understanding it? And you know what? There is. The other way of understanding it is to understand that culture a little bit. When you understand the culture, it was a common phrase where people would say, you know, let's say you were a son and you had a, a, a father who was older and before you went on some big adventure or big thing, you would say, you know, I need to stay and bury my father. In other words, I need to stay around, take care of the family business, honor my father, he, take care of him in his old age. And then when he dies and is buried, then I can go do my own thing. But now I have responsibility to my father. So the phrase, you know, I need to first let bury my father, um, I think means... My father's still alive, but he's getting old, and he'll be dead soon, and I'll follow you. And when you put it that way, then things start making a little bit different angle here. Because there was one thing that you got from your father dying when you were a son. And what was that? The inheritance. Yeah. And everybody wants inheritance. Yeah, then the oldest son would get a double portion or all of it, if he was the only son, and then every other son would get what was divided up left. And so, what I think the man is really saying is, is, you know, I'd follow you, but my dad hasn't died yet, and I don't really have the means. But when he dies, and I get his inheritance, I got plenty of cash, and I am self-sufficient, then I can follow you. That matches up with Jesus' response. Listen, pal. You let those who are godless bury the bodies of those who are dead physically. That's what Jesus is saying. Let the spiritually dead bury the physically dead and you come and follow me. That's what Jesus is saying. You remember the rich young ruler, right? Turn over to Luke 18. Let me just look at, show you. This is a very similar type of situation. As a matter of fact, the gospels have several of them, but this is one that is very parallel Jesus, if you look at verse 18 of Luke 18, Jesus is asked a question. A ruler uh, questioned him saying, good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? That is a good question. But notice it's what shall I do to inherit eternal life? 
And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one's good as that God. And then Jesus brings up the commandments. Now, the reason Jesus brings up the commandments is because the normal response is, you know, I haven't obeyed the commandments like I should. And Jesus said, you're right. You aren't righteous enough to save yourself. You can't do anything to save yourself. I'll tell you what, I will forgive you and save you by grace and give you the free gift of eternal life. So Jesus says, here's the commandments, and he's waiting for the man to say, you know, I I haven't done this quite right. And surprisingly, the guy says, I've kept all those commandments from my youth. And he says, really? Really? Mr. Righteous here. So then Jesus decides to go for the man's idol. He's very wealthy. And look at what he says in verse 22. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack, sell all that you possess and distribute it to the poor and you shall have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Now, have you ever read a gospel tract that said, you know, God is a holy God, God is a just God. And if you want to get to heaven, sell everything and give it to the poor. No. I mean, some people have taught that and said, you know, you need to make a vow of poverty or you can't be a Christian. What? Is Jesus saying we have to give away everything and in order to be his follower? Well, no, we don't have to make a vow of poverty. Is he saying that, well, if you're rich, you, you just can't go to heaven? No, he's not saying that. Now, the rich man here, he is grieved because he's got a lot. And so he doesn't follow Jesus. But the point Jesus was making the reason Jesus said go sell everything is he was seeing if the guy was willing to give everything he had up to God or not and the guy wasn't he didn't love Christ more than his money and that was the problem he idolized his own self-sufficiency And so this is the same thing we see happening back in Luke chapter 9. You know, you, sometimes you, you look at these texts and you're thinking, you know, why is Jesus being so mean? Well, the guy is, he's mercenary. He's going, you know, I'll follow you, but man, I gotta get some cash together because I don't really trust you because, you know, I don't even know you that well. I need to make sure I can take care of myself. God. But Jesus reveals the the idol in the man's heart. And the idol was he was willing to trust his inheritance, but not Jesus. And whenever people love their things more than God, it's like a huge iron ball shackled to their leg that they can't even get. And Jesus says, there's the narrow gate. Come, follow me. I'll lead you through it. And they can't move it. And anytime they want, they can undo it. But they won't because they love that iron ball, that thing that is going to keep them from entering into the kingdom of heaven. I've heard that you can catch monkeys by cutting a hole in a coconut. And uh, you drill a little hole in there that's just big enough to, for them to fit their paw into. And then you wire the, drill another hole and attach the coconut to a rope or whatever. Then you put a little shiny trinket in there, a little yummy morsel, and the monkey will come along and look in there and say, ooh, present. And he'll stick his hand in, he'll grab onto that, and he won't let go. And you can approach, and he can't get his fist out, because he's not letting go. 
And though it kill him, he will not let go. And that is how money is to some people. Though it kill them, they will not let go. They will not have God tell them what they're going to do with, quote, their money. Though it kill them, they will not let go. Jesus makes it crystal clear in Luke 16, 13. No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. That's about as clear as you can get it. You either have God controlling your life or money controlling your life, but you can't have both. Either God's having say or wealth's having say. What is it? You either let go of the ball and chain and follow Jesus or not. There's no getting into heaven with the ball and chain. That's why when they said, boy, they were the, the disciples were surprised that rich men couldn't enter the kingdom. He says, well, with men, this is impossible. With God, all things are impossible. What God's grace does in a person's life is it makes you want to get down there and unshackle the, the ball. Like Zacchaeus, who was very rich, he followed Jesus. Many godly people who have had... Great abundance have followed Christ. So what is the difference? The difference is this. You either love Christ and are willing to have Christ have control of you and your life and your money or not. And if you're not, I hear a cell phone. If you're not, then what's happening? You are unwilling to let Jesus rule over you. Go ahead and kill it. Pull it out. Everybody's going to (laughs) know. All right. Don't look at the person. They're already embarrassed enough. All right. But let me just give you a quick quick diagnostic tool. Let's just say for a second that you're sitting there thinking, Jack, you know, you're kind of poking your finger in the wound here. Um, I think I may love money, but I'm not sure. I'm not sure if... You know, my money is a ball and chain and it's keeping me from coming to Christ or not. How can I tell? Let me just give you a little quick diagnostic test. Three questions. You just answer these in your own heart and then you'll know. First question. Do you understand that all that you have is given to you by God? Everything that you think is yours is his and you're just a steward of it. Do you understand that? Now, if when I say that, you're thinking to yourself, well, just wait a minute. You know, I've worked hard for what I have, and you know, I have labored, and I went to school, and I got an education, and I have, you know, stayed up nights and invested wisely, and I have accumulated all this wealth, and, you know, this is mine. Then you have failed the first question. Secondly... Do you give to the Lord's work in accordance with how he has blessed you? Think about that one. Now, if I say that, and the first thing that comes to your mind is, hey, 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 I give my fair share. I know I probably give a lot more than other people do, and I'm paying my dues. Then you fail the second question. Because God doesn't ask you to give In comparison to other people. He asks you to give in comparison to what he has given you. To whom much is given, much is required. And so if you're 
Only thought is, well, I'm probably giving more. You don't even know how much other people are giving. I mean, any godly person wouldn't let you know. So you don't know. God wants you to give, yes, a free will offering, but in accordance to how he has blessed you. And if you're not willing to do that, you've missed that question as well. Now, finally, what happens in your life when you have a crisis, especially a financial crisis, some trial comes into your mind, what's your first thought? Okay, how can I take care of this? Let's see, I've got this much money in the bank, I've got my credit cards, I've got this much, I could sell this, I could do that. Is that such your first thought? Do you run to your money when you have a trial? Or do you run to Christ and say, Lord, I've got this situation, I pray that you give me wisdom, help me to... Who do you run to when you have a trial? That is your God. God says this to the Apostle Paul in 1 Timothy 6.17, Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. That's who your hope is. That is the hope of a Christian. So if you're understanding that... That all, if you understand that all you have is the Lord's, that He gave it to you, that He gave you the power to make your wealth, and it's all His, and if you're willing to part with it without being undone and unraveled and fret and have a heart attack because you've lost your fortune, and if you're giving according to the scriptures in accordance with what He has blessed you, then you're probably alright. As far as your love of money category. But if you didn't answer those questions right, then you need to get rid of that excuse because it is shackled to your leg and it will keep you and make you unfit to enter the kingdom of heaven. If man is not willing to deny himself and take up his cross and follow Jesus, he can't be his disciple. That's why Jesus says, if you look in the middle of verse 60, but as for you, go proclaim everywhere the kingdom of God. Go proclaim it and proclaim it everywhere. The kingdom of God. Go do the Lord's work. This is nothing more than the great commission in condensed form. This is something we're all to do. Follow Jesus. And again, it's not so much about location. It's about our heart attitude. Because following Jesus means having a transformed life, allowing God to reign over every part of your life, even your finances. You know, yes, Lord, yes, to your will and your way. But what if you're sitting out there and you're thinking, but Jack, I, this one got me, man. This one got me big time. I, uh, I think I have the love of money in my life and I don't know what to do. I mean, I, how do I get to the place where, where, you know, my wealth is, is Christ's, and, and how, do I, how do I do that? How do I get rid of that excuse? We're getting there. Third, third excuse, though, first. Look at verse 61. God is not impressed with your higher priority relationships either. Another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first permit me to say goodbye to my house at home, to those at home. You know, again... This seems so, so benign and harmless. You know, okay, Jesus, I'm going to follow you. I'm just going to run home, get a few things and say, mom, dad, brothers, sisters, uncles, aunts, I'm leaving. I'm following Jesus later. 
You know, but for all we know, the guy lived in Athens or Rome or Alexandria, Egypt. But let's just say he lived, you know, 200 feet away. The fact is, the man was not willing to follow Jesus because he had an excuse. Just like the other people had an excuse. All these excuses at first light seem very legitimate. And Jesus' response again is telling, look at verse 62, but Jesus said to him, no one, after putting his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. What does that tell you? When Jesus responds to these these excuses, what does that tell you? If you look back, you will go crooked. That's what's happening. In that day, just like today, these simple plows are still used in many countries around the world. You know, a plow is just a stick with, you know, a piece of sharp metal. It's got, you know, two handles and a little harness. It's just a rig. Then you hook it up to a, a ox or horse or mule or whatever. And you slap the reins and you start walking and it just digs the dirt up. Well, it's pretty basic. But everybody who in there who saw it done and who knew how it was done knew that the only way to go straight and not wander all over the field is to look forward and keep your eyes on the business at hand. And if you didn't do that, you'd go crooked. And you know, if that doesn't work for you, just imagine this. You're driving down the freeway and um, hold the wheel straight and then just look behind you and say, man, look at that. I uh, look at where I came from. I've never seen the freeway in this lane from in this direction from this site, except on my rear view mirror, and it's always backwards. This is fascinating. And you know what? The next thing you'll see is Jesus. <laughs> That's it. That will be the end of you. You will go crooked. Why? Because you can't go forward and look back, or you go crooked. The Apostle Paul said it this way in Philippians 3, verses 13 and 14. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Now, if you're out there and you're thinking to yourself, what does that mean? Does that mean I have to like erase my past and never think of my memory and no more birthdays, no more anniversaries? You know, don't tell anybody about my conversion. No, never share the gospel. That happened in the past. No, that's not what Paul or Jesus is getting at. What Jesus knew about the man that we don't know about the man is that when that man was going to go home and say, Mom, Dad, you know, Uncle Bill, whatever, that they'd say, hey, don't. I mean, come on. You've got family here. We love you. You can't just walk away from your family. It's almost harvest time. We need you. I mean, this Jesus guy's great. You can follow him later. And Jesus knew that these family members would turn this man away from following God's calling on his life. Are you engaged in an immoral relationship? You need to leave it and not look back. I mean, whatever sins you engaged in before coming to Christ, don't look back to those sins. 
And if you know the Lord, then you're constantly going to be tempted to think about things that you did in the past and to go back and wallow in the mire. And you have to not look back because you can't stay on the straight and narrow to heaven if you're looking back to those things that will cause you to deviate from Christ's will for your life. Now, if we ever get there, when we get to Luke chapter 14, verse 26, Luke is going to tell us some of the scariest words, I think, in all the Bible, where Jesus says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, and yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now, those are some serious words. Hate? Hate? A translation from a Greek word that means hate? You know, what, what's going on there? Is Jesus saying, don't honor your parents? No, he got down on the scribes and Pharisees because they did not honor their parents. So what is he saying here? He's saying this. He's saying this. He's making a comparative statement that when mother, father, husband, wife, brother, sister, whoever it may be, your dearest, closest family ties, whatever. If any of those people ever want you to sin against me, to disobey my calling on your life, you must say no. Now, there are one, only one way to show love. We've talked about this all the time, and that's what? To obey. So if your parents are saying, don't do it, and God is saying, do do it, then you have to hate the one and love the other. It's the only way to do it. You have to put Christ above all your other earthly relationships. And you can't let them stand in your way. Thomas Watson said, if our dearest, closest friends should stand in our way in our pursuit after heaven, we must either jump over them or trample them underfoot. You can't let anybody let you sin. You know, well, if I do... This person will get mad at me. I I want you to know. There are many in this congregation right now who have been ostracized, divorced, because they wanted to follow the Lord, they wanted to love the Lord, and their spouse or their family members or close friends said, listen, you do that, I'm not having anything to do with you. It happens all the time. I think any Christian has experienced to one degree or another, and it's painful. It's painful because, you know, okay, you want to be an unbeliever, fine. But, you know, I got to talk about Jesus. He's kind of Lord of my life. I'm kind of consumed with him. No. It's either you and no Jesus or we don't want you. And when that happens, you walk away. Because you aren't going to sin against the Lord for anybody. Now, if you're out there and you're thinking, but this is hard. This is hard. I mean... I don't know if I can do this. You know, is it worth it? You know what? Peter had the same question. If you were to turn to Matthew chapter 19, verses 27 through 30, you read this. Matthew chapter 19, verses 27 through 30. Peter said to him, Behold, we have left everything and followed you. What then will there be for us? And you know, if you remember, the apostles, man, they did. Jesus called them. 
you know, Peter, James, John, Andrew, they just left their nets, left their boats, left their lucrative business, their family business, their father who was running their business and just walked away from it. Oh, Matthew, you know, Mr. Tax Collector, Mr. Fortune 500 guy, he just walks away from it all to follow Jesus. So they've all just walked away from it all. And Peter's, you know, saying, Lord, we, 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 we don't have anything but you. Well, we've left all. We, we've, I mean, what's, what's going to happen? Um, we, we don't have anything to go back to. And look at the Jesus' encouraging words, verse 28. And Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, that you who have followed me, in the regeneration, when the Son of Man will sit in his glorious throne, you also shall sit upon twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters, or father or mother, or children or farms, for my sake, will receive many times as much, and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. Isn't that great? No one's going to get to heaven and go, man, this is a jip. I mean, that wasn't worth it. You know, I had to sacrifice a pretty close relationship, and now look what I got. Maybe you and your wife want to be missionaries, but your parents don't want you to follow God's calling on your life because they want to be close to the grandkids. Don't look back. Maybe you have an unbelieving wife or an unbelieving husband and, and you know, they don't want you to go to church. They don't want you to read your Bible. They don't want you to be so fanatical. I mean, can't you just go to church once a month and just be religious and, you know, not talk to me about the Bible and not live the truth out? No. It's either me and Jesus or you don't get us if you don't want us. But we come as a package. I am a Christian, a follower of Christ. Maybe you're dating somebody and that person says, you know, can't you just like lower your standards a little bit? I mean, you don't have to be so literally biblical. And you just say, no, you dump the person and you don't look back. Don't let any relationship take you away from following Christ. Don't look back. Because those relationships, as wholesome as they may appear at first glance, if they hinder you from doing God's will, they're bad relationships. So these are the three excuses. And you know what? It's hard to even think of an excuse that you could offer that didn't have something to do with pleasure, money, or relationships. I mean, that pretty much covers the whole gamut. It's amazing how it works, isn't it? And you know what's interesting about this? is all three of these men had what appeared to be good intentions. But you know what else is interesting? Is all three of these men had higher priorities than Jesus. And what's scary is all three of these men were unfit to enter the kingdom of God. And if excuses are keeping you from following Jesus, from giving your life to Christ, I want to tell you how to break free right now. First, I want to speak to you who don't know Christ. Oh, I know you're here and you probably call yourself a Christian. But when you look at your life, you know, listen, I don't serve in any ministry. I don't ever rarely read my Bible. I don't love God. I don't love the things of God. I don't love the people of God. You're, you're not a believer. Just tell yourself the truth. Now, 
Having got that over, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? You've got these excuses in your life. They're shackled to your leg and you can't even bring yourself to look down at the undo latch. Well, this is how it works. So you're a sinner. So you've sinned against the holy God. And how does God feel about that? He does not like that. Because he is perfectly holy and perfectly just, he has to punish sin. You know, a lot of times when people think, oh, well, God forgave so-and-so here, and God forgave so-and-so here, and he forgives me. The question, it, what comes in their mind is like God can, uh, you know, choose whenever he feels like, like it to just say, you're forgiven, and kind of just gloss over his justice. Never, never, ever happened. It can't happen. It would undo God if he ever didn't punish every sin to the fullest extent. He must have satisfaction to the fullest degree. And since he is infinitely holy and perfect and every sin is an infinite offense, the punishment is huge. And here we are, we're all sinners. We all have our little idols in our heart that are keeping us from coming to Jesus. So what happens there? I mean, if they're going to plunge us into hell because we won't come to Jesus because we have these excuses. How do we break free? I mean, what has to happen? Here it is. God's grace has to change your life. God's grace comes to you in the person of Jesus. God says, okay, here's a whole bunch of excuse-offering rebels down there. Now, if I wait around for some of them to come follow me, it'll never happen. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to go down to earth. I'm going to be born of a virgin through my son, I will have a sinless life. I won't have any sin nature. I'll just live this perfect life. Jesus will live and he will willingly offer himself up on the cross as a sacrifice. He will bear the sins of the many. He will be crushed for their iniquities. The chastening of their well-being would fall upon him. He would be bruised, beaten, tortured. In their place, in substitution, I will pour out my wrath on my son. He will be the perfect lamb of God, the substitute who takes away the sin of the world. And then anybody who is willing to believe in him and trust in him and what he accomplished on the cross and his resurrection, I will save that person and wipe out, cancel out the certificate of debt so that before me they are perfect and holy and just. And you know what happens? Then you receive the Holy Spirit. And the power to walk away from those things that are keeping you from Christ. It's all by God's grace. It's all by God's grace. And if you've never done this, if you've never come to God and said, God, save me. I can't save myself. Help me believe. Help my unbelief. I can't, I can't do it. That is right where you need to be. That's where everybody gets to when they get saved. I can't do it. And when you can't do it, then God says, bingo, you got it. You can't save yourself. And then what does he do? He saves you. He gives you the Holy Spirit. He causes you to be born again. And now you have all the things you need to begin to walk away from those excuses that want to keep you going crooked. Now, let's just say, though, that you're, uh, you know, you are, you are saved. You're a Christian, you're born again, your life's been changed, but man, you keep going back. You just think, oh, I am such a sow returning to wallow in the mire as a dog returns with vomit. That is me. I hate that. What is going on here? What, what can I do to get to the place where I'm 
Not so enslaved to those things that I supposedly repented of and I keep going back to. Well, know this, that when you're saved, you don't become instantly imperfect unless you die right after that. You begin to grow in godliness. And that process of growth is called sanctification. It is a process. And God does it as his own good timing. But just as you are saved by grace, you are also sanctified or grow in godliness by grace. What does that mean? You know, I really think people have this misconception of grace. They kind of think that grace is kind of like magical verbiage that God throws on people, you know, like pixie dust to just make them godly. That, that's not it. You know, if you were to ask somebody, okay, what is grace? Grace is undeserved, unearned favor or gifts from God. Right. Now, what gifts does God give you to grow in godliness? Well, he gives you prayer. He gives you the Bible. He gives you the fellowship of the saints. He gives you spiritual gifts. He gives you resources to use. All of those things you have are all God's gracious gifts and he gives them to you and as you use them, you grow. You don't use them, you don't grow. I mean, you could put a plant out in your yard, barely water it, just kind of just barely keep it alive so it's just this anemic looking little shrub. Or you can cultivate around it and fertilize it and water it and man, that thing will thrive. What is the difference? One's neglected and one's nurtured. Let me ask you, If you're having a hard time turning away from those things from your past, let me ask you, are you using the gracious resources God has given you to thrive in your life? I can tell you this, that if you do that, these, you will find the power resident within you to say no. It's already there. But if you don't take the resources and use them. If God just lays them in front of you and says, here's the Bible, which will transform you from one glory to the next. Here is prayer, which I will answer. Here is the fellowship of the saints to encourage you to love and good deeds. Here are spiritual gifts, which you can use to be blessed. Here are these resources and skills and gifts and finance and whatever it is that you can have. And if you use those for God, I will bless you. Here you go. Use them. And then I'll change your life. And you say, well, I don't want to do that. I just grace Lord. It's not happening. It's not happening. You use God's gracious resources, God changes your life. You don't, you're anemic. And you'll find yourself weak and unable to turn from those things that are hindering you in your walk with the Lord. So you're going to leave here this morning. And the question is this, are there any excuses that are keeping you from following Christ, from becoming a Christian? really from being born again and if there is repent of those excuses and cry out to god and say i cannot save myself but lord save me change me make me new i received jesus i believe he died on the cross for me i believed he suffered and was buried and rose again on the third day i trust that and only that to save me and please make me new and you think god's gonna go no way no, he, 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 he answered those prayers always. He is a merciful God and he will grant you everything you need to live for him. And if you are a Christian and you're haunted, ask yourself, am I keeping my sins confessed and am I using the resources he has given me? Because that's how people grow. And whatever you do, don't look back. Let's pray.
Father, we thank you for just this great text this morning. What a blessing it is. And Father, it's neat to see how your Holy Spirit has assembled just a few phrases that are so packed with soul-searching truth. Father, I know that all of us are fall into the love of pleasure, the love of money, the love of relationships over you. And Father, we want to confess that. Father, if there is somebody here who doesn't know you, Father, I pray they would see that tomorrow never comes, that this morning is the day of salvation, that they would cry out to you today, be saved by placing their faith alone in Christ alone and his death and resurrection alone to save them. And for the rest of us, Father, help us to keep our sins confessed. Help us to use your gracious resources to live a life that is pleasing to you so that other men can see by our life that we are followers of Jesus. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.